Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Have you finally dug out from the outrageous snowfall we've had? I'm still buried in the snow right now. That's, that's, how are we going to do the show? How's this going to even work? It's not, that's how. Coming to you almost live from the heart of winter. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your hosts. We've got probably the best show to date. Certainly the most recent show to date for you. Uh, today we were speaking with the Edmonton Public Library's writer-in-residence, Mr. Marty Chan. Thank you for joining us, Marty. Thank you for having me. And we also have, we happen to know, because we've done a little bit of planning on this show, what the rest of the show will comprise. Which so, is rare. It is. I mean, usually it's like... Um, well, extremely disorganized and lacking in metaphor or simile. Um, so, for the rest of the show, we've got a few interesting segments for you. We speak with Trevor and Jesse from Plugin.it, which is an online social media marketplace kind of thing, and they'll tell you all about that. We also speak with Sarah Jackson, the owner of Lazara, a lovely coffee shop on White Avenue. I suggest you check it out. And we're going to talk with Mike Anderson, one of the organizers of the Freezing Man concert happening January 29th here in balmy Edmonton. But first, let me tell you guys a little bit of a story. All right, you ready for this? Ready for my story? Over Christmas, I decided that the Unknown Studio needed a listener line. You know, all the big radio stations do it. People who are big deals, they have telephone numbers. Why shouldn't we? So I got onto Skype and I bought us a telephone number and voicemail. And uh, the, the phone number is located in Washington. And uh, really, we call it the Gift of Gab line. And we want our listeners to phone in and share little tidbits of information or to possibly libel or slander Scott or myself. Now, you did, in fact, mention this on our last episode, but neglected to actually give out the numbers to the phone. That's correct. And in order to get you, our lovely listeners, used to listen to using the phone line, uh, long distance charges apply, by the way. Um, we're going to start this whole thing off with a contest. And I'm going to find a prize. I haven't found it yet. But I guarantee you that in a month's time, at the end of this contest, so two episodes from now, we'll announce a winner. Um, and I want people to phone 509-252-0185. That's a number in Washington. And I picked Washington State uh, because you can't pick a Canadian phone number, and also because I used to vacation in Washington State as a child. So I thought an homage to Washington State. So 509-252-0185, and I want you to leave us a message telling us about one of your most embarrassing moments. Okay, we're going to do this over the period of a month, two episodes from now. And the person with the most shameful story will not only have that story played on the show. For sure. But will also win. A fabulous prize. A, a not insubstantial prize. For their humiliation. Exactly. They will get a little something from us back to them. So I thought, what a great segue into a show with Marty Chan. Marty, you write about awkward moments for, for teenagers and young adults growing up. Can you share any awkward moments with us your, or most embarrassing moment with us? Oh, my most embarrassing moment has to be uh, going clothes shopping with my mother. 
uh, I think I was about 11, 12 years old. And, you know, this is back in the day when you, you weren't allowed to wear certain kinds of clothing, but the cool kids could. And the cool kids at school wore jeans, and I wore plaid pants. <laughs> and I remember I was at a department store with my mother trying desperately to convince her to buy me a pair of jeans, but she had no fashion sense at all. And she wanted me to wear uh, this, this uh, sort of lime green pair of corduroy pants. And uh, I got in a huge argument with her. And at one point, I remember I crossed my arms over my chest and I said, there's no way I'm ever going to wear corduroy pants. You can't even make me try them on. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she pulled this uh, classic negotiation tactic that all mothers use to win arguments about clothes. She grabbed my pants and yanked them down to my ankles in the middle of the store. <laughs> and so, of course, I'm in no position to argue with her because I'm standing in these ugly, or sorry, I'm standing there in my uh, tidy whitey underpants, right? So. Yeah. I have to grab the corduroy she wants me to try on, head over to the boys' change room, and try them on. So that pretty well sums up my childhood, why I need therapy today. I think we have a winner, actually, <laughs> already. Wow, it's going to be hard to top that. You've but... ruined our contest, Oh, sorry, Randy. don't. We'll, we'll back that up. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty embarrassing. Scott, what about you? Uh, oh, you put me on the spot. I'd have to think about that. Well, uh, there's absolutely heaps of humiliation in my past every just, day for me basically yeah, yeah. so well, uh, certainly you... certainly i don't believe that my mother has ever yanked my pants down in a department store i can i can safely say that but yeah i, th- I really do feel like that's a that's pretty pretty embarrassing all right you have to top that for the prize which will be something 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 yeah. fabulous something fabulous it will be i promise i have connections sort of how about a pair of green corduroy pants? I think that's probably what we're going to give away. <laughs> the green corduroy pant award. That means that I have to go back to Value Village for a second time this week. Um, yeah, we will. We'll give away the the official green corduroy Edmonton Public Library writer-in-residence pants for the most embarrassing moment <laughs> ever. So, And also something fabulous to go that's along right. with that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, Marty... How does one exactly become a writer-in-residence? Do you get an invitation? Do you have to apply and go through some kind of rigorous process? Uh, The Edmonton Public Library puts out a call for proposals. And the great thing about the uh, Edmonton Public Library uh, writer-in-residence position is they limit it to to, uh, just writers who live and work in Edmonton. So the competition, the field of competition is much smaller. Uh, so I put in an application, and uh, I hoped for the best, and I wound up getting an inter- interview. And uh, after the interview, they gave me the job. So, so it's a lot like applying for a normal job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What exactly does a writer-in-residence do? Uh, the writer-in-residence, our primary function is to try to inspire uh, writers to pursue their dream and then give them enough advice that they can turn their dream into a reality. Uh, the best way I can compare it is it, it's it's almost like you're a gas station attendant, right? There's some people that will pull up to the gas station, and they just need directions. And so you just give them directions on where to go. Other people, they'll know exactly where they need to go, but they just need to gas up. And my job is to gas them up and get them going on their way. So you... <laughs> You're full of gas. I'm full of and gas. You're, you're providing this gas to other people. <laughs> Writer gas. Writer gas. Yeah. Unleaded. Unleaded. Unleaded fuel. <laughs> well, and so I was wondering because um, uh, speaking as a failed writer, I've tried and failed many times to start writing just about anything from blog posts to news articles to actual uh, novels. Um, what do you do to get inspired? Or yeah, well, let's start with that. What do you? What is it that inspires you to write? Um, for me. 
I mean, it's interesting that you talk about you're a failed writer because I think every writer is a failed writer. The professional writers are the ones who are too stupid to quit. So, so I feel that what inspires me to keep going is the uh, stubbornness not to not to give up, and also. For me, I, I love telling stories that uh, uh, capture the imagination and, and make people laugh, or in some cases, uh, make them scream. I, I remember I did a show a few years back called The Bone House, and I remember the uh, main reason why I wanted to write that play was simply I just wanted to hear the, the uh, high-pitched screams of audience members. I've heard of The Bone House. What have you heard about the, this house of bones? That Scott? it was terrifying. Really? I did not get a chance to see it. Was oh, it a was it a play that I'm was staged at the Fringe, or was it? Yeah, something? we we uh, we staged it at the Edmonton Fringe. We we uh, had a BYOV, so we turned the Strathcona Community League into a venue. And the the, the premise behind the show is basically it was a, supposed to be about uh, a lecture being delivered by a guy who claimed to be a hunter of serial killers. And he claims that there's a serial killer loose in North America that the police have not caught yet. And he tries to recreate several unsolved murders. And he talks in vivid detail about what happened at each one of the unsolved murders. And as an audience, while you're sitting there, you start to get the creepy feeling that the guy up front isn't actually a hunter of serial killers, but he's the killer himself. And he's brought you all together to brag about what he's done. But by this point, it's too late. You can't leave the theater. You're kind of caught there. And the fellow gets to the end of his presentation, and he claims he has a piece of evidence to prove his theory, and it's the strange graphic that he's found at the scene of the last murder. And he produces it and gets everyone to stare at this image. Then he turns out the lights. And in the dark, after people have been staring at this image for about a minute, they start to see uh, a face floating in front of them because they've been staring at that image for so long. And then the show gets worse because the real killer makes his presence known, and it turns out he's been sitting in the audience the entire time. And so we proceed to kill somebody in the dark. And uh, I will say, from what I've heard, the serial killer actually was in the audience and was milling about with them at intermission and and during the pre-show and listening to conversations and gleaning facts from audience members. He would drop into his, I suppose, dialogue as he's committing his murder, just to make it that much more terrifying. That is Which is brilliant. Extremely brilliant. Yeah, very clever. Yeah, we personalize the terror for everybody. <laughs> Was that like the the new technology you were using for the play, personalized terror? Yes, exactly. Like, um, I don't I just feel like that sounds so sophisticated and and um, being able to write in a certain way that you know will impact the audience in a certain way, I mean how do you how do you learn how to do that? Uh, a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, even using the Bone House as an example, uh, when I had written the the blackout scene, I think it wound up timing out at about fifteen minutes long. And in our dress rehearsals, the the director and the actors found that fifteen minutes was too long a time to keep the audience in the dark because uh, after fifteen minutes, people began to calm down and they got a sense of where they were. And so I actually had to chop about half of the uh, blackout out of uh, the climax of the play. Hmm. And it worked uh, incredibly well after that because we kept the audience off balance all the way through. I wouldn't have known that if we had tried it out and failed. And that's why I always talk about uh, failure is the key to success for writing. You've got to try it out. And when you fail, you pick yourself up and you start over and you try to find out what actually works. So what about those people who can't pick themselves back up? I mean, you, you mentioned before the show that uh, 
that you were you were oh I was at the uh, library talking to writers and I had to wash the uh, stink of desperation off me that's right <laughs> yeah well desperation <laughs> is not necessarily the greatest motivation but it is um, a way to get you uh, to overcome the huge hump when it comes to writing which is the fear of writing a lot of times writers will sit down and stare at the blank page and not what to, not know what to write and what I try to do to get people to overcome that fear is introduce them to the process of writing, which means you're not just writing a perfect first draft. You're going to be revising over and over again until you have something that you're actually ready to show somebody. So if you look at it as a sense of, if I write my first draft and I fail, the only person that I'm letting down is myself. I can then take a look at my failure and revise it and turn it into something else. And once I'm ready to show somebody my writing, then I can. Yeah. All I heard from that was fail. <laughs> just kidding. It's like the teacher from uh, Peanuts. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And uh, I guess I guess that sort of gets me to thinking about the different... You know how, like, um, athletes, professional athletes will... You always hear about how they they haven't washed their jock strap all season because it's bad luck. <laughs> I mean, writers must do things like that to sort of... Um, uh, stimulate their writing or to trick themselves into thinking some outside force like a like a troll troll doll with you know like a bingo player might have is going to help them to write is there anything weird that you do that it instills you with confidence or inspiration do i have any rituals do you yeah know? yeah rituals uh i cannot write unless i am wearing my ratty sweatpants <laughs> that i have not washed that's in just about an a month. excuse marty <laughs> i know that's, that's what i tell excuse. my wife anyway yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but honey i'm writing <laughs> look i'm so creative <laughs> when the truth is they're just the most comfortable pants he owns <laughs> yeah, yeah the I mean, only pants at the I end own. of the day <laughs> At least they're not green corduroy. That's yeah, right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, and your wife hasn't pulled them off you. Well, let's not get. Into <laughs> <laughs> you guys still sponsored by the traveling tickle trunk? We sure are. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the this, the smell of desperation. What is it that uh, that some of these people are coming to you for? What What are some of the maybe common discussions that you've had? I think a lot of times, uh, especially when I'm working with beginning writers, they just want, they, they've got one story that they're burning to tell. It's either a story that uh, belongs to their mom or their dad or their grandfather. It's about how um, how they basically came to be, you know, in this country or to be alive. So I get a lot of people talking about their family stories and they just want to get that out because they feel like if it's not captured uh, in some form of publication, then that story never happened. So I get a lot of people who want to create a family legacy. And uh, so oftentimes I have to tell them, you know, what you're trying to do is great. I mean, it works for probably you, your family, and your immediate friends who are familiar with the story. But if you want it to be published, you have to think about the people who don't know who you are and don't really care about that story. So you've got to find a way to make it relevant to a complete stranger. And oftentimes, the, the, the writers will look at me and they'll nod and they'll understand. And then the odd time, they'll curl up in a fetal position and cry. Or this, what is it, this afternoon, I think somebody said, just tell me you like it. Just tell me you <laughs> yeah, like tell it. Me you so like some people it. want validation. Yeah, some they want just, validation. Yeah. And, and that, that's a fair reason to write. But if, if you can understand that what you want is validation and not publication, then that's fine. But yeah. if you think that you won't, if you're validated, you will be published, then... You're, you're seriously deluded and you have to sort of take a step back and, and, and uh, 
take take a real run at, at writing as opposed to just doing something that's good enough for your family. Now, we previously have had one person on the show who is an aspiring writer recently. It would be our friend of the show, Daryl Hook. Of course. Who's on for our Christmas episode. That's right. Uh, is in the process of trying to get his novel published after finally sitting down and being stubborn and putting on his ratty sweatpants and yeah. making it happen. Uh, and he's been having some difficulty. Do you have any um, advice for how people who, who have their manuscript, who have finished it, what's the next step that they need to take from there? Well, the next step really is to get it out to as many people as possible, not just publishers uh, and agents, but try to get it out, out to other writers. The way I broke in in publishing is uh, uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Wayne Arthurson, who's, who's a novelist, he was published uh, through Thistledown Press. And he knew of my work from, from the days that I used to work at uh, CBC, and I wrote these sort of humor pieces that ran every week. His publisher informed him that they were looking for manuscripts for young adults, and he passed the word on to me. He said, you know, you might be interested in this. And just by dumb luck, I had happened to have finished the first draft of a YA manuscript or a kid's, kid's manuscript. And uh, I said, I've got this thing. It's been in my drawer for about two months. Do you think your publisher would be interested in taking a look at this? He said, sure, let me, let me send him an email. And I think it was about a month later, I got an email from the publisher uh, basically asking me to send in the manuscript, and I did. And about two months later, they sent me another email that said, we read it, we liked it, we want to publish it. So don't just think about publishers and agents. Think about talking to other writers, because those people are talking to agents and publishers. And if they put in a good word, you have a better leg up than just being, you know, Daryl Hook from Edmonton. Like in all things, networking is important even for the aspiring writer. It's true, man. It's not. Sometimes it's not what you know. Sometimes it's who you know. Yeah, that's right. It's always who you know. It is always who you know. So uh, one of the the many services you provide is to inspire, to assist aspiring writers. Will you literally sit down with someone with a couple chapters of something they've written and go through it with them? Yep. Uh, they usually send me the, the uh, submission first. It's no more than 15 pages, double-sided, or uh, uh, double-spaced, single-sided. Uh, I'll read the uh, material. I'll mark it up. I'll have some notes, some general questions. And uh, then I call them up, and they come in for a meeting with me, and I just go pretty well through the 15 pages and mark up uh, and talk to them about what worked, what didn't work, what they can improve on. Uh, where their strengths are, and hopefully they walk away with a better sense of what they need to do to those 15 pages, and hopefully they extrapolate that to the rest of their manuscript. Hmm. So did you, as your career sort of started, did you seek out the assistance of any writers-in-residence as well? I had no idea there were things as (laughs) writers-in-residence when I started, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why I wanted to do a lot of uh, public outreach, just to let people in Edmonton who are budding writers know that there's actually a resource here. And it's not just me. There's, there's, I believe, four or five other writers and residents working in the city, either at the University of Alberta or Grant McEwen University or the Canadian Authors Association. So, you know, if you don't like what I have to say, you can find them out and uh, uh, seek them out and, and get their feedback. Yeah, there are second and third opinions in this writerly town of ours. Oh, yes. Everybody's got an opinion. That's, yeah. that's right. <laughs> there's no question about that. I had a chance to catch up with Freezing Man Festival site manager Mike Anderson from Trickstar Productions 
to talk to him about uh, what people can expect to see at Edmonton's first ever Freezing Man Festival. And here's what he had to say. So how did you actually become involved with Freezing Man? Was it because of your involvement with uh, with Big Valley or... or, or um... No, um, Freezing Man, uh, we, we got involved with it um, late in the game. Um, what happened was um, a few months back, uh, the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce had us uh, work on their July 1st event. Right. And um, so we went and executed everything involved um, to their setup, to their site, to the, um, everything around what was going on in the army, army base for July 1st. So when they started doing this uh, Freezing Man thing, they, they, start, they came up with the concept, started booking the stuff. It was all great and dandy. Then it came down to execution. Right. <laughs> and they're like... Well, this has become a lot bigger than we thought it would be, and um, yeah. So then they asked us to come on board about a month and a half ago to take everybody's vision and pieces of the puzzle and execute um, and put it all together. So sweet. So so you were you're part of the team that not necessarily came up with the concept for Freezing Man, but you're the guys who are going to deliver Freezing Man. To yeah, exactly. Um, but what we've come in with is the help on the creative. Um, how it's actually going to look inside and, okay. and the actual flow and functionality, um, you know, and I'm also the guy who also came in and said, well, some elements of this aren't going to work outdoors because of, because of costs and safety and where I had to, you know, say, you know what, this is our first year. We don't know how cold it's going to be that day. Typically on average, it's minus 20 or colder. Mm-hmm. You've, factor in wind chill doesn't doesn't make for execution that much fun or an enjoyable experience so instead of planning and building it and spending all the money on something that may not happen you know let's move it indoors save those costs and make the indoor experience a lot better right so the big question that i have on my mind is whether or not this is the cold equivalent of burning man can people expect to see some of the same things? Um, probably not. Uh, Burning Man is its own festival. Freezing Man is its own festival. Not related. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the only thing in relation, there's a man at the end. And <laughs> they are on the opposite extremes of each other. But um, I can't really speak towards uh, from one to the other. I've never been to Burning Man. Yeah, me neither. I'm aware of the festival. I know there's a guy that burns. <laughs> <laughs> Or no one's going to freeze burn, here. But there's right? like a statue that burns, and I believe at the end of it burning, the festival ends or something. Oh, okay. If if it was a concept like that in Edmonton, and it was the festival ends when someone when something or someone is frozen, it wouldn't be very long. No, but you could always melt something. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's when, true. When the last thing drips, and. There's no more ice, and then it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it's spring. But that is not what's happening. Yeah, no. But, uh, but no, uh, yeah, that festival's outdoors, we're indoors. Um, but we are taking an outdoor festival look and element and making the outdoors look like the indoors, just like the guys from Night at the Roxbury. <laughs> right, yeah. We're, we're pitching there once upon a time, so we stole that idea. And uh, <laughs> All great ideas come from Saturday Night Live. Exactly. And so, Bushimi Brothers. Or- yeah. So what can... Uh, 
What can people expect when they get there? It's not your typical concert experience, I'm guessing. No, um, like your typical indoor experience is you come to a show, there's a stage, you have entertainers, they're done, you go home. Mm -hmm. And um, when you come, right when you're waiting in the lineup, there's going to be a stage going with DJs just out, out in the lineup. So it start, you start the experience right at the lineup. You're just checking your coat. There's entertainment going out in the lobby. When you come in, you're just going to be knocked on your, just knocked off your heels because you're, there's two stages. There's a midway carnival. There's a couple centerpieces. And it's, the show goes across the whole halls. Like there's three halls. There's a B stage in there. That's mm -hmm. an outdoor stage, uh, typically, that we brought indoors. Then we've got our main stage that's got, I think, a 120-foot video wall on it. Um, Holy shit. A bunch of video screens and, and it 24 spans moving lights. And expand. the main stage spans approximately, with all the lighting and video elements, I'd say almost 200 feet. Wow. Yeah. And it takes up the whole expo center. Yeah. So this isn't just like Hall A. No, no. This, this is, is... It's Hall... Let me see. FGH. Okay. Um, our backstage area is the entire Hall E. Wow. So all the new elements um, of Expo Center, we've taken it all over. Great. So, And then... Um, you, and how the light show usually just stays on the stage, what we've done um, in the middle of the room, we've put a 24-foot by 24-foot... Uh, truss structure together which is a bar uh, that you'll serve out of the center but this bar that's made out of truss is going to have moving lights on it and it becomes part of the stage show so whatever's happening on the stage is happening there and then above that truss bar there's an 18 foot globe oh. uh, essentially right above it and there's going to be video on this ball and wow. which has never been done before in Edmonton. So, so. you're projecting that onto the ball? So then? we're projecting it, uh, the whole 360 degree circumference of the ball, um, which has video elements that's tied in with what's going on stage. Very cool. And then on the opposite end of the room, we've got the B stage mm -hmm. when the one stage is dark, the other one lights up and it's got local talent, um, DJs, um, we've got a fashion show on there. So there's always something happening. And, you know, you, you want to spice some things up. There's four midway rides right in the middle of that. What, what kind of rides are like there? Like your classic, you've got your jump or your Gravitron. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a Tornado, a couple other things. Uh, I don't know the exact names, but the really cool thing is um, the, it's called Sustainable. So um, it's ran on generators that are uh, fueled with um, uh, biofuels. So, um, yeah, it's the first green carnival of its kind. So it's a, it's kind of cool. It's a really cool concept, and it's the biggest indoor event we've ever done. So. Very cool. Um, how many acts are going to be at the event? Uh, let's see. There's eight on the main stage, and then between the B stage and the lobby stage, I would say another 10. So 18 to 20 acts approximately. And it spans basically from mid-afternoon onwards till yeah, the yeah, night Yeah, from 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when everything kicks off and then ends at 2 a.m. Um, and do you know if there are still tickets available? Yep. Yeah, uh, it's approximately 80% sold out. So they're going to be selling tickets right until the doors. And, you know, I expect it to sell out, I don't know, somewhere around 9 o'clock at night. So. Probably, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, 
Any last words, any last thoughts that people should really be watching for at this event? Or? Well, um, the really cool thing a lot of people ask about this event, oh, how's the indie th rock thing going to go with the DJ thing? And yeah. I think they complement each other nicely, like um, a fine wine with a nice piece of triple a alberta beef so <laughs> sure <laughs> sure yeah i think you can have both yeah and um i think there's gonna be a lot of diversity there and you know if you're not a fan of one thing yeah i think you could appreciate what's going on on that stage and maybe become a fan of something else so. for sure well i look forward to the event i'll be there and uh hopefully there will be many more for years to come thanks for talking yeah. with us mike well thanks a lot for having me <laughs>So, Marty, you, you don't just, you write plays and novels. Plays, novels, uh, radio plays, uh, television. Really? Yeah. What kind of television? I used to work on a show that sh was shot out of uh, Edmonton called Jake and the Kid. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I also worked on a show that was shot out of Edmonton called Mentors. I've heard of Mentors. That's so cool. Yeah, How do you get into screenwriting for television? Uh, it was, uh, like most of my career, a complete accident. Uh, I was at the uh, Banff Television Festival, and I ran into a fellow who was the, one of the producers on, on Jake and the Kid. Mm -hmm. And he had mentioned that they were desperate to cast one of the roles in the show. And they needed a Chinese actor to play a character named Henry Wong. Now, I, I don't have any acting experience, but I thought, wow, what a great way to meet the other producers on the show. And they they take a look at me and go, he's quirky, he's weird, he's funny, we'll remember him. And then I could come back later and pitch story ideas. So I went out and auditioned for the role, and uh, my plan backfired because I wound up getting the part. And I had to desperately try to convince the producers I wasn't really an actor. And they're like, no, 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 just be yourself, you'll be fine. First episode, they shoot, and uh, next thing I know, my lines of dialogue are being cut in subsequent episodes. Uh, but I stuck it out to the end of the first season, and uh, every chance I had, I, I went and talked to the guys in the story department about what they were doing. And I remember the last episode we were filming, they were, they were filming in the cafe, which my character owned. And they were literally delivering script pages to us seconds before we were to shoot the scene. And uh, the story department hit a huge problem. They couldn't figure out how to solve it. And I jumped in, and I offered a solution. And the story editor looked at me and went, you know what, that's a good idea. We'll, we'll run with that. And uh, they were thrilled with that, so thrilled that they actually fired me from the first season of Jake and the Kid <laughs> as an actor, but they hired me as a story intern for the second season. That's awesome. That is awesome. All my, all my ideas for television are like one-off skits. I think I could only ever write for a sketch comedy kind of thing. And I'm not going to We're going to do some of those for the end of the studio. At some point. Yeah. We have... We have grand designs. I taught myself to, how to use iMovie so I can be a writer just like Marty Chan. <laughs> just look out. I don't think you write in iMovie. 
I'll write things that will be translated into iMovie, Scott. Gosh, so stubborn. Just raining on your parade. <laughs> there's the inner critic, and then there's the outer critic. That's right, yeah. yeah. So uh, you are you haven't always lived in Edmonton, though, I understand. Is, is that right? No, I grew up in a small town just north, in, uh, north of Edmonton called Morinville. And, oh, yes, we've all heard of, isn't that yes. where they make dog food? Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's also where Dave Cornway comes from. Ah, yes, yes. Dave Cornway. We're quite fond of him on this show. He's the other guy from Warrenville. <laughs> yeah. It should say that on his blog. Yeah, the other guy. <laughs> that would be awesome. So uh, so how much, I'm, I'm going to assume that this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much of your upbringing in Warrenville informs the stories that you tell in your writing? Well, with the kids' books, they definitely are a source, a a research source. For example, the corduroy pants story uh, winds up being the first chapter of The Mystery of the Graffiti Ghoul. Uh, My first book, The Mystery of the Frozen Brains, was inspired by a real-life experience where um, a friend and I were playing, and we wanted to get some ice cream, so we went into my parents' home, and uh, I looked in the freezer, I didn't find any ice cream, but I found a bag of frozen brains. <laughs> they were cow brains. And for about a week, I thought my parents were aliens from outer space. <laughs> and that became the mystery of the frozen brains. But life informs art. It does. Jesus, cow brains. Yeah. But I'm the laziest be... writer in the world. I don't do any research. I just read my own life for stories. I think that that... Write what you know, right? I'm, I'm what they say? under the impression that uh, Isaac Asimov did exactly the same thing. Yes. Yes. He was yes. <laughs> probably a robot, actually. <laughs> uh, well, that's just good. He just wrote what he knew. Yeah. And he knew robots. And the future. Very well. Yeah. Being a time-traveling robot. Obviously. I would have loved to have met him as a teenager. I wonder what kind of teenager Isaac Asimov would have been. I think he would have been very nerdy. Yeah, maybe. Last one picked to play dodgeball, maybe. Or, conversely, he could have been total jock. It's weird Just playing against type. But you oh, never, yeah. you never really hear about that. You never hear about the struggling writer who was once a football star. He, what was J.R.R. Tolkien doing before he became a literary professor? Well, he, he was, was fighting in the war. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah, yes, he was. I'm aware of that. But that, but that fully informed it did. those books yeah. too, right? Like that's what. That's what Lord of the Rings was a, a lot about. And because of his training as a linguist, he got to write the Elvish language. Which actually, for the record, the story was an excuse for him to make use of the language that he had invented. Really? Yeah. Oh, the, wow. the, I didn't know that. The language came first um, because he liked tooling around with made-up languages. Because he was a linguist and he loved it. And then he he also enjoyed like myth cycles and whatnot. So he decided to create a frame in which he could use the language he had invented and so he wrote i believe the hobbit yeah. actually was what came out of that and then eventually started expanding on that i'm surprised you don't know this why am i explaining this to you you have tengwar tattooed on, tattooed on your arm i actually do. oh my goodness <laughs> yeah i uh, i am so i'm so fond of tolkien and so fond of of elves that i had their language tattooed onto my arm it's the word brotherhood very nice. Yeah. Or, or douchebag. <laughs> yeah, could be. Yeah. Actually, just says it says this guy's an idiot. <laughs> I think I'm thinking of getting something. Elves walk arm. by him and snicker. Snicker. Yeah, it's like, oh my god! It's like a it's like a human tramp stamp. <laughs> 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 yeah. No. I mean that. 
very interesting that we're talking about how nerdy I am right now. I really feel quite put on the spot. Um, yeah, there you go, everybody. If you didn't know, I'm the biggest fucking geek in this city. <laughs> and uh, It's not the first time we've talked about your tattoos on the air. It's true, but it's the first time we've mentioned the Elvish, I think. Yeah, I think that might be the case. The others are totally manly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like you the steampunk one on your leg. Yeah, I'm just a big nerd. Steampunk one on your leg. <laughs> I do. I I'm did. Just, I'm just outing him on the air right now. <laughs> what about you, Marty? Any tattoos? Any remarkable uh, birthmarks that we should know about? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that can doff the uh, Elvish on. <laughs> okay. Yes. On your forearm. You guys are such prudes. Although you know, if I hadn't become a writer i think what i would have wanted to do is uh, I, I would have wanted to become a, a tattoo artist yeah and then for every jerk that came in and asked for some writing in chinese i just thought <laughs> you are the uh, biggest cock ever speaking of uh, of other guests we'd like to have on the show the guy who did this elvish tattoo i want to get him on the show because he's been asked to do some pretty ridiculous stuff oh oh yeah i can imagine some of the stories but i mean a lot of those guys will refuse you know, certain kinds of work. Like if someone's someone comes in there, like I want to write, I don't know, something really absurd or, or racist or something. Probably wouldn't do okay. it. But there was there was one. That we should use our portable studio equipment. Do it go from the tattoo, tattoo parlor, parlor yeah. and interview him while he's tattooing someone. I don't think he'd really like that because <laughs> you really got to concentrate. I if he were tattooing me while we interviewed him, I'd be like, no, this interview's over. Just focus. Focus on what you're doing. Oh, yeah, you do not want the man with the needle That's to right. be di- uh, distracted. I think that would be a really hard on the shoulders. You're always sort of leaning over and really trying to focus. Well, what's the most tender part of the body to get a tattoo on? I'm not sure. Places without... Top of the foot. Top yeah. of the foot? I was going to do oh, Very that. thin skin. Oh, yeah. yeah I was I going to do that. Uh, also, along your spine, lots of nerve clusters. Very, very painful. Yeah, that one hurt. Anywhere where it's going right onto the bone as well. Okay. But there are areas of the back that are like so. I've got one that is sort of all over the upper back, but the sides near, even on my shoulder blades, wasn't so bad. But you're right. As soon as he went along the spine, it was I could actually, if I didn't control my muscles, I could feel like my my you know legs, the muscles in my legs fire. Okay. Because it was just it wasn't, yeah, it was really painful. Anyone who says tattoos aren't painful, I think I've said this before, is lying. They hurt like hell. Well, some people have high pain tolerance, so it might not be as painful Perhaps for some not. people. But they but do hurt. Certainly. They're, I you're being repeatedly stabbed with many needles. But do, do you, on a subsequent visit to the tattoo parlor, does it hurt more or does it hurt less or the same? The last one I got, I was under the needle for three and a half hours, and it was excruciating. By the last hour, I was like, like he was taking breaks every probably... 20 minutes by the last hour and he was just like man I'm, I'm so close to being done I know you hate this but just hang in there and he had warned me before that I'm going to hate him by the end of the, the session and, and you did and I did and I did then I took him out for beer the next day so it was okay. good but uh, yeah we'll have him on the show anyway this is about tattoos this is about you Marty Chan how in, dare you in our Sorry. usual fashion we have kind of meandered to a different topic we have this is what happens this is what happens so, so Go ahead. What else have you written? Tell us about some of your stories, some of the your favorite the, pieces. The highlights, uh, the highlights, I would probably have to say, is uh, the first big hit that I had at the Edmonton Fringe was a play called Something Dead and Evil Lurks in the Cemetery and It's My Dad. And it was one of these goofy plays. I put it together with a bunch of guys from theater sports, 
And uh, we were we had no idea what we were doing. We were rehearsing at the university at 11 o'clock at night. And like n- today, they have the key cards. You can't actually get into the building, right, unless you're a student. But back then, you could sneak in. You'd wait until the door opened. You'd rush in. You'd take over the space. You'd wait until 11 o'clock at night when your cast could actually get off work and show up and uh, rehearse. Uh, and uh, that that was a fun play. Uh, the next one that I remember uh, that most people know me for is a play called Mom, Dad, I'm Living with a White Girl. And that premiered in Toronto. It's since been produced across the country. And uh, we had an off-Broadway run of the play in 2004. So I got to go down to New York for that. Uh, Bone House, obviously, would be another one. And with the kids' books, uh, I've got The Mystery of the Frozen Brains, The Mystery of the Graffiti Ghoul, The Mystery of the Mad Science Teacher, The Mystery of the Cyberbully, and uh, my picture book, True Story. Hmm. How do you feel writing young adult fiction? I actually really enjoy writing young adult fiction. I, I, I found that with uh, writing plays for adults, uh, it was hard to gauge whether the audience actually liked the show or not because you're, you're trained to sit and watch a play politely you're not going to start talking and just go oh my god you know get me home now but with kids you get their their full-on honest reaction right from the get-go so if they're bored you know it right then and there and i like that kind of honesty would you like it sort of informal way focus test some of the stuff that you'd written in front of kids or yeah with the uh, first two novels i I grabbed sections of the uh, manuscripts and brought them into schools and I sat down and I read the uh, manuscripts, to the, the excerpts to the kids, and I'd get their feedback. And I remember I learned uh, on the first time out, I was at a school on the North End, and, you know, you, you, you're trying to come up with insults that the character is going to throw around. Right. And, and I had one character call another character dumbass. And the book is aimed at grades four, five, and six. And, and as soon as I said dumbass, there was this gasp right across the classroom, and I thought, the hell is going on <laughs> so i said dumbass again and there's, there's another gas and at the end uh, of the uh, reading i remember one little boy raised his hand and said why did you swear <laughs> i thought i'm never going to be invited back to this school again that was probably the first change i made when that i got home kid was a dumbass <laughs> all of those kids were dumbasses swearing is glorious i learned to do it when i was in grade six so you probably don't need to include a lot of content like that for young adult stuff. No, I, I try to avoid it. They generally <laughs> yeah. aren't the swearing type. Yeah. Yeah, I like my books to be read by the kids. Now, it actually, I would postulate that it is harder to write for a younger audience than for uh, an audience of, uh, I want to say your peers, people of roughly the same age as you, because you, number one, you have uh, an idea of, if I was writing a story right now, I'd have a pretty good idea of what Adam and, and you would both be interested in and I would know how to how to kind of fashion a story like that mm-hmm. but if I was writing for kids I mean I would I would have no idea how to uh, put together a story that would be accessible to them that would be enjoyable for them and that would I don't know I want to say make sense to them because I'm not a kid anymore and when I was a kid is so far removed mm-hmm. from where they are right now yeah so I wouldn't have any clue how to connect to them. So I, I would say that kudos to you. My hat is off. It must oh. be much harder to write for kids than to write for even, even I'd say young adults would probably be easier. Well, there, there are some challenges uh, writing for kids, but I, I find that if you come up with the universal childhood experience, 
and you update the details so that you're not talking about corduroy pants, but something that they can connect with. Uh, the generally. UCE, the UCE, <laughs> the Universal Childhood <laughs> Experience. Of course. Have you have you uh, trademarked that term? Because it seems I have like... just right now. <laughs> <laughs> no one tried to steal it. It's patent pending. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Marty Chan's, Marty Chan. Universal Childhood yes. Experience. Sounds like this yes. giant contraption at the Acton <laughs> yeah. Public Library. What you you want to make here? use of the Universal Childhood Experience trademark 2010. What you do, see, is you take your specific childhood experience and you plug it into the machine. We have an algorithm that breaks it down. <laughs> and the... Uh, <laughs> Google's probably the, already built The iPhone this. app will be coming out next week. Yeah. Just speak your childhood trauma into the application and it will take care of the rest. My Story mommy spanked written. me. <laughs> <laughs> Punishment. It makes the bad computer sounds from the Adam West. Yeah. <laughs> and t- ticker tape comes out of it, just like punch cards and stuff. And then oh, somebody, spills, uh, oh. somebody spills their soda on the machine just as I'm walking past. And I become Kurt Russell from the computer who wore ch- tennis shoes. Except all he's doing is spouting out childhood anecdotes. Yeah. My mother didn't hug me enough. (laughs) Oh, my. So we're going to build this, right? We're actually going to build this device. We have to build it now. We have the technology. But we don't have the money. And that's why we should thank our sponsors for providing some money to us for the show. Sure. Because I just figured that was a good time to do That's it. That's a good segue. Let's thank our sponsors. Our first sponsor. Of course. We always, as always. thank first every time on the show is the, the Edmonton, Edmonton Journal. Journal. That's right. Karen Unlin and her merry band of scribes. Print fo- pirates. Print pirates. That's right. They sponsor this show to the tune of, well, handshakes, mentions, links, which are very, very Smiles, valuable. The occasional us. exchange of foamy beer like substances. <laughs> yes, yeah, true. <laughs> And we thank them for it, because without the journal's support, we would probably still be a little-known backwater podcast, but we're actually a big deal. Actually, that's how I found out about you guys, was through the Edmonton Journal. Really? Yeah. Good It works. Yeah. <laughs> Validation at last. <laughs> and now we're going to invent a contraption. Indeed. Anyway, so thank uh, you very much to the Edmonton Journal. And then, of course, our good friends over at Guru Digital Arts College. That's right. With uh, Edmonton's uh, own Hogwarts of Digital Arts. That's right. Uh, where you can start a new career in the digital arts. Uh, not, all sorts of wonderful programs. Uh, it's not design. too late. It's yeah. not too late to start a new career. Absolutely not. So uh, it's a great place, great people. Uh, if you are looking to start something new, you could uh, you could certainly do much, much worse and but check out We don't Guru recommend it, though. No. Don't, don't you do check worse. out Guru Digital Arts. Yeah. And in order to improve not your design skills, but your prowess in the bedroom, we have the traveling tickle trunk. Now, I can't guarantee that the devices and creams and such that they sell will enhance your abilities sexually. But maybe they will. I don't know. I'm, I'm quite fond of the products that they sell. So thank you to Brenda and, the, and everyone at the traveling tickle trunk for their ongoing support. Um, they, I'm happy to say, have decided to renew their sponsorship agreement with us. They decided on a six-month trial. And um, when, I, when I talked with Brenda a few weeks back and said, is this something you want to continue to do? She said, absolutely, yes. So thank you so much for their support. It means a lot. So that's it. Those are our sponsors. <laughs>
All right, so I'm coming to you almost live from Garage Photography. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. That is correct. And I'm talking to two gentlemen, uh, the founders of Plugin' It. And who am I talking to specifically? Uh, I'm Trevor McDonald. Uh, Jesse Richard. All right, now, Plugin' It's a new uh, social, online social marketing marketplace. Is that right? Is that a fair description? Yeah, it's a social interactive marketplace where users can list items for sale and what really makes us unique and different is that we allow sellers to attach financial incentives to their sales uh, so it means that someone can put up uh, you know the, the common example uses you know for easy math a car uh, and you need to sell a car very quickly a used car most likely ten thousand dollar price tag and to move that car over a fast you know a, a short period of time you need some kind of an, a financial incentive that drives that sale so what we're able to do is let that user attach, say, a $500 to $1,000 price uh, reward to that, that sale where someone can come in, see the car, and say, you know, I don't necessarily want to buy this car, but I do see the possibility of someone I know wanting to buy that car. So they can do what we call plugging the sale, uh, which would take that, that sale item and syndicate it through their Facebook status, uh, their wall, rather, uh, or through their, their Twitter account, uh, blogs, uh, or even their website so they can take a link and, and post it on their website for someone else to see that that listing and say you know what I do want to buy that car and at that point when someone sees that listing on someone else's account and clicks through and makes contact with uh, with the buyer we immediately know a plug in it that that seller was connected with that buyer through a particular plugger a unique plugger and for that we're able to you know uh, allocate that reward to that plugger through the system so. All right, so it basically takes um, your loose social network or a network of people who like to buy and sell stuff and turns them into your sales force in a way. That's exactly the way we put it is uh, we're basically trying to monetize your, your individual network to help sell your own goods or the goods of others. All right, and you guys launched sort of a demo camp last night at the time that we're recording this. What was that experience like for you guys? Awesome. It was a really, really positive experience. We were... When you go to demo camp, you're, you're in a room with people that immediately are up to speed with what you're doing. They understand the context of what you're doing. And it's very easy to um, relay a, an idea to someone and have them pick it up. And not just pick it up, but also uh, turn it on its side and give it back to you in a different way and make you think about things that you hadn't really considered. The, just in the past 24 hours since demo camp, we've made a considerable amount of changes to uh, plug in it just in response to what people have said. Some things were positive. Um, some people had things that they didn't like about plugging it, and we immediately responded. We realized that, you know, to make it work here in Edmonton, uh, we really have to listen quite closely to the local market and what their needs and their demands are. Because if you don't cater to that, uh, you're going to lose your base very quickly. You, you don't have a chance of survival with, with getting something like this off the ground. So what kind of changes did uh, the audience at Demo Camp were they interested in, or what, some of, what were some of the features that they liked and maybe didn't like so much? Well, uh, the major majority of the features uh, that, let's say, they did not like were uh, things that were tied uh, inherently to their, to their social network. So because it leverages people's social network so, uh, so seamlessly, uh, it's almost integrated directly into Facebook and Twitter, uh, there was, when people got involved in the process, like, this is almost too easy. I see that uh, it almost appears like it's spam to me because I'm not accustomed to this process. I'm now reposting condos or cars, you know, with a with a click of a button. 
Now, that's kind of by design. What we're trying to do is make it as easy as possible to uh, collect on any reward out there. However, that was a big, big hesitation for, for people. Wait a second, is this spam? Even though I'm posting it, is it spam? And, you know, we walk a fine line there. It's a unique relationship where, you know, at first glance it's easy to call it spam, but what you have to realize is that you as the syndicator are the spammer. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a weird twist on it where, uh, you know, with plugging it, it's, it's a socially regulated utility where you, you have a, a social network, uh, you have a list of followers, and it's taken you so long to develop that, and your, your street credit has, has built this list of people that you can connect with. And if you, I guess if you, if you go in and start spamming your own Facebook wall, yeah, of course, people are probably going to stop being friends with you, and if you completely, you know, saturate your, your Twitter list, your, your Twitter uh, tweets with our plugin and stuff, people are going to stop following, because it, it does get to that spammy point, but you have to realize that it's you yourself that are right. degrading your own social media network. So it's really on your own onus to regulate yourself and, and do it responsibly. Well, and I've seen people do it wrong. You know, they've, they've spammed their own Facebook walls because they've attached their tweets to Facebook. And so I think it really is incumbent upon the user to understand the way the system works. Now, what I'm curious about is how you guys are going to make money off this whole deal. Uh, well, actually, we, uh, we, the, the payments go through the system. Um, so uh, as, a, as a lister, as a poster, when I sell my car or my house, um, I have to pay the reward through the system. And of course, um, the fees that are, are paid out uh, are divided equally amongst our payment gateway and, our, and ourselves. So we actually take a small percentage, uh, about 2.5% roughly, uh, of all of the rewards that are paid out. So it's not the items, it's just the rewards that people are offering. That's right. So it's totally free to list your item, and, and that doesn't change the, you know, as far as a, a seller, it doesn't affect you at all. Um, but the, the, the cost, or I guess, you know, the, the transfer fee is taken off on the plugger side where they receive payment for what they've done on, on, the, on the network. Now, the, the other thing about, I guess, you know, um, with, with respect to the, the pluggers, other people have mentioned online, like, you know, just at first glance, they blurt things out on Twitter, like, you know, it's a pyramid scheme and, you know, this sort of thing. But, you know, if you look at it, what we're doing is evenly dividing uh, the, the, the reward amongst the pluggers. So it's not as if, you know, the first guy in the door makes more than the second guy and the third guy. Um, everybody is an equal partner in the success of someone's sale. Uh, and really for us, we're quite minimal in that. We don't really uh, shake, you know, a thousand dollar reward, for instance. We don't have a very big cut of that at all. Uh, it's mostly divided amongst those, those pluggers that we're involved with moving whatever product that was. So how did you guys dream this system up? What was it that, that was sticking in your mind about this? Well, a very practical example is, uh, you know, you see, you see this kind of behavior on, on Facebook and Twitter all of the time. Now, uh, my best friend uh, selling a house in Calgary, and what he did was he said, uh, I need, I'm selling my house. Uh, if you know of anybody, uh, if you know of anybody out there who's looking to buy a house, let me know. You'll do me a favor. Now, there's two potential problems uh, with his approach to trying to sell th things through Facebook. The first is that he only reaches uh, his immediate uh, group of friends. So in his, in his case, about 150 people. The second problem is he's not really providing any incentive for uh, all 150 people to get involved. So uh, as you know, with social, uh, social networks, uh, there's kind of a, a hierarchy, the people that are very close to you, people who are not close to you, people you never talk to, people you haven't seen since elementary. So what we're trying to do is reach the last 100 people or the last 120 people to really get them involved in uh, 
replugging the item. So how we did that was say, let's add a reward to this. Now I'm gonna post it, post my house on Facebook with a reward. And we get around both those barriers. First, everybody wants to get involved because uh, there's a financial incentive. And second, we can track when it goes beyond the first group of friends. So when it goes to the second tier, we split, uh, we split that. If it goes to the third tier, we split that. And it, everybody gets involved. That's very cool. Now, is this something that you guys really only see sort of larger ticket items being sold on? Or? No. I mean, it's, it's the long tail. We can go as far down the list as you want. If you go on to plug in it, you'll see a, a very, very wide list of, of different items and services. And we're, you know, as I spoke with you earlier about how we were really interested in, in getting in touch with, you know, our Edmonton base here to find out even tonight, you know, this mixer is really part of, there's going to be a few people in here that uh, would not be traditional users of, say, Kijiji, but because of the nature of what we do and how it's an interactive and progressive uh, sales force uh, online, there's opportunities in things such as event promotions uh, or, you know, services. Uh, there's, of course, you know, finding, you know, replacing uh, a job posting, um, travel. Uh, I think it's been described, uh, uh, we've heard it described as uh, the Groupon for everyday people. So now you don't have to be a business to use social network, social networking to promote whatever it is. Now my dream as, a biz as an owner of this company is I, I want to see the day when somebody says, I really just want to find a wife. I'm 35 and I'm, I'm sick of playing the game and uh, I've made a few dollars in the stock market and uh, if you, the social network, can find me a really good wife, that'd be great. And I think that's, that's a real win. I've seen this done, you know, before kind of in, in traditional uh, social, social networks or social webs, but that's really, I think, going to be the high watermark for me. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the, the creativity of, of the people using the system for sure. We, yeah, we definitely want to, we want to push the, the envelope as far as how people use this. Um, of course, I mean, we have to keep everything legal, you know, we don't want to get into uh, the realm that, you know, Craigslist has found itself with, with a few <laughs> problems, but we are very interested in trying to push this as far as we can and, and leave it as open. And it's not, it's not a very regulated system by us. As I mentioned earlier, it's a very socially regulated um, uh, space online. Mm -hmm. So it's dependent on you as to how you use it. And, and we're quite curious to see what people do. Uh, the field's open to them. Quite, it, we, there is a big question mark around the, the, the behaviors of how, how they're going to use it. Of course, yeah, it's as much a social experiment, I suppose, as it is like a, a commercial marketplace to move things. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds interesting. So people are starting to arrive, so I'll let you guys go. Thank you so much for talking with us, and best of luck. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out the Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. Coming to you almost live from Lazara. Is that even how you pronounce it? Depends on what part of Italy you're from. Okay, so I'm talking with Sarah Jackson, Jackson the owner of... Lutzara. Lutzara. That's how I say it. Now, what does that even mean? 
Luzzara is a town in northern Italy. Okay. It's just southeast of Milan. And its claim to fame is? Um, well, my shop is attached to a scooter shop. That's right, yeah. Years ago, a couple of the guys went to the world's largest motorcycle show in Milan. Okay. And fell in love with this town of 1,000 people. Right. So when they came back and we decided to diversify the building that our businesses are in, we figured that it would be a kind of a cool name. It was nice. It's Italian theme. It rolls off the it tongue. It rolls off the tongue. It has, unique. It has two Z's in it. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. It's character. People think that it, I, I named it after myself for some reason. Like, like Sarah. Luzara. I didn't really get it, but whatever. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. So you're actually sitting uh, in front of the giant blue fish. Is that somehow related to your brand or? Lutz- the crest from the town of Luzara okay. has a big fish on it. And so it So we took the fish and we made it a centerpiece of the shop. Wonderful. And yeah. it's and it's brilliant. It's and wearing it's wearing a tiara. Well that <laughs> is because of me. <laughs> That's your your signature item. Yeah, my signature. Now you you've worked in this area for a while, uh, the White Avenue area, but you used to manage Top Gear. Is yes. that right? For about five years. And then and so what made you think you know what this scooter shop needs? A coffee shop directly adjacent to it. Well, when A&W is your closest coffee shop, <laughs> and you like good coffee, yeah. like me, and you're kind of on, ah, it's Edmonton, and there's a million piles of snow all over the place for a portion of the year. Mm-hmm. It was something that came to mind often. And finally, what, what was With the... With previous experience, I have worked in food okay. and coffee, and kind of just was at that point where it was time to make a change either maybe become part of an owner of top gear or something i really like the family that has i've built here the the top the top gear family um and at the time that we decided to um open that i decided to open lutzara the hair salon about on the second floor of the building Mm -hmm. wanted to have a space so we decided to open at the same time Okay, so now there are three businesses in this building. Yes. And they're all, you guys are all buddies. Yep. You all help each other out. Yep. They drink your coffee, you drive their scooters, and you get your hair done upstairs. That's right. That's right. It's, and it's apparently I'm the best coffee, say, according to the patrons. There you go. It is. So we're actually being accosted yeah. by yeah. the patrons of Lutzara, and this is the best coffee on the east side of White Avenue. Yeah. All right, so there you go. You've got your own cheerleaders. I do. Have you paid these people? No. Or? No? no. They're just brand evangelists. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Now, this seems like kind of a high-risk venture. Even in an area, an area like White Ave, a town like Edmonton, do you ever wake up in a cold sweat wondering All how the, the bills are going to get paid? Yeah. All the time. Like a true entrepreneur? Yeah. yeah. It's terrifying. And how long has the cafe actually been open? Two years, March. Two years, March. Happy birthday. Thank you. That's very exciting. Yeah. Any, any bold plans for where to go next? Um, Continue to grow the business? You're welcome. Okay. Um, I would... I actually like like to get a bigger location. A bigger location. Still probably on White Ave. Mm-hmm. Preferably still on the east side of the tracks. Yeah. I think this side is really unique. Uh, I was somebody came in and described it as bohemian today. Yeah. I don't know if that's how I would necessarily describe it. I would, but definitely unique. There's lots of really unique shops. Really unique people live in the area. I think it's not the same kind of cookie cutter stores that come in and out. Agreed. 
and so therefore I do want to stay and I like building the side and building the family that's down here and um, you also need a bigger space because you're starting to do events here yes why don't you tell us a little bit about that okay so <laughs> I've decided to because I like all the businesses on the east side of the tracks I um, I decided I wanted to bring them into my store uh, maybe some of their customers come in, maybe some of my customers meet them that, that might not have known them. Mm -hmm. I'm a lot about building relationships and community and um, family. Like, yeah. So I have I started with a bread event. It was in bread, bread education. And it was very successful. As very successful. How many and, people came out to that? Uh, 18. Wow. Yeah. I actually had to kind of move move into the scooter shop for that. I thought we'd be able to do it in here, but there's so many people. So yeah. it was really good. And, and that was with uh, Prairie Mill Bakery and uh, my friend Chris, who's a food blogger in the city. Mm -hmm. And they came and talked to people about bread. The following week, what last week was the paint spot came right. and talked about building uh, or expanding an art collection. And this week is Brenda from the Traveling Tickle Trunk. A sponsor of ours. A sponsor of yours. She's going to come down and talk about keeping the sparkle alive. Wow. Yeah. And with all of the businesses that I'm choosing, I'm wanting to find things that, that like, they either do workshops or hopefully and encourage people to go and, and shop at their stores as well. And like you said, it's not something that you're necessarily doing to help your business because yeah. some of these nights you'd rather be at home maybe, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's I close I, I close and then I reopen again for this the events. And they do people have to sign up to to make I sure that they prefer that they RSVP, but you so know you what? I'll make room. We'll make it happen. Squeeze in, get cozy. Now, all of this started um, with Top Gear. Mm -hmm. You yourself drive a scooter. I do. And and how long have you been driving a scooter? Six years. And you, when I came in here to record this segment, you and a few of your patrons were just like, you need to get a scooter, you need to get a scooter. Now I really want to get a scooter. Yeah. What are the advantages of scooter ownership? And we'll bring this, ownership. we'll somehow bring this back to coffee afterwards, Kay. I promise. Okay. Well, scooter ownership. I describe my scooter as my happy place. <laughs> okay. Having a bad day, having a good day, no matter what kind of day, it's your happy place. You get on, you get to smell everything that's going on. Yeah. These are the um, emotional aspects of a scooter. You get to smell things, you get to see people, you get to actually interact. I do drive a bright pink Vespa. Right, so not a lot of people want to ride with you necessarily? No, not, not on the same bike, maybe. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But people will stop me and they'll see me and they'll ask me questions. And so it, because I really, really hate talking to people. Yeah, no, not I so can much. tell, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not very chatty. <laughs> um, so I end up talking to people and meeting all sorts of different kinds of people wherever I go because they want to know about it. Mm -hmm. um, the economical advantages to a scooter, um, you'll never spend more than maybe $20 a month on gas. Really? Uh, yeah. My brother is in university at the U of A, and he has been riding a scooter for two years now, can pretty much park wherever he wants. See, that is the advantage for me. That is like... I Downtown could... living, it, it, maybe if you don't, if, if you live in, I don't know, south, south, south Edmonton or north, north, north Edmonton, it might not be ideal, but I have, we've had lots of customers that commute from Sherwood Park into the city every day. On scooters? On a scooter. No way. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And Edmonton is, does have a pretty good scooter community. As you saw, there's quite a, a lot of scooters come and hang out here and they really like to go riding together, get to know each other, make new friends. It's so there's a plan, uh, according to one of your patrons, to do 
rides during the summer, and maybe to meet at Lutzara on Sunday mornings. Yes. See how I brought it back to coffee? Yeah, you did. Well done. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you, you can get them all coffeeed up, yep. and they can go cruise around. Uh, so you're, you're literally starting a bike gang. Yeah. That's, I should get badges. Yeah, I think the people of Edmonton need to be aware of this. So we're doing a public service by <laughs> revealing this to them. So not only can you come down here and get um, a cup of outstanding coffee, Italian style, yes. but you can bring your scooter on Sunday mornings, make some friends, yeah. and go for a ride. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So any plans for um, upcoming info nights? What are you doing uh, um, beyond Brenda's? Beyond event? Brenda's, I have... The there is a new business mm-hmm. on 109 ninth Street, just above Red Bike, okay. called. Uh, I'm blanking out on the name right now. It's an environmentally friendly shop. It is called Raising Spaces. Okay. And so we're going to talk about how to make your home more environmental. Um, big big changes that what you can do, small things, big things. Tips and tricks. Great. Um, then I'm doing a how to take better vacation photos. That's booked in so far. No way. Yeah. So having a photographer come down and he's going to spend an hour just kind of little tips on how to take, use your SLR camera to your advantage when you're on holidays. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for chatting with you're us, Sarah. very welcome. And thanks to the coffee. It's one of the best I've ever had. Oh, thank you. Oh, my most embarrassing story actually takes place in junior high, though. It was actually the first day. I think I've talked about this on the show. I don't know if I have. The first day of junior high music. Have I ever, does this strike a bell? So the first day of junior high music, band, right? I had my rented saxophone from National Music on 149th Street. And um, I don't know what, what the hell we were talking about in class, but I was, I was being a wise ass, as I often was. And um, the, the teacher made some comment about my wise assery. And I, was, I sort of scoffed at her. But I scoffed so hard that a giant wad of snot flew oh, out from Jesus. my nose onto my mouth. So I was just sitting there just like, mm, and everyone was laughing at me. The first fucking day of music class, I just got up and left, wiped my face. And I don't think I came back to class either. I was so humiliated. Oh, man. And all because I was being a jackass. If I had been nice and not not disruptive, that probably wouldn't have happened to me. So, But no, high school was uh, pretty tame. Pretty tame. No crazy stoned episodes with carrots for me. Oh, okay. I'll admit that um, my high school career was much more... Like, if I could permanently forget junior high, I would happily do so. But high school was... Uh, was a time of maturing and I became less a social pariah and more a social butterfly and I started to uh, have inroads with most of like the little cliques and friends with multiple different groups and uh, by the by the end of my high school tenure things were were pretty good actually I I look fondly back on my last year of high school that's actually. good it was not well, that's bad. good that's good a lot of people can have some very terrible experiences well I remember I uh, I'm dating myself but uh, uh, there was a pop star who's who all the girls loved when I was in grade 12. And uh, his name was Sean Cassidy. He was uh, one of the stars of uh, uh, the Hardy Boys. And he'd be the modern day or the 1980s equivalent of Justin Bieber. So everybody <laughs> loved him. Cassidy this, Fever? Yeah, Cassidy Fever. His brother, his half brother was David Cassidy from the Partridge family. 
And Sean had this sort of beautiful, blonde, wavy, sort of feathered hair that was very common in the early 80s. And I had this straight, black, Chinese hair, which <laughs> looked horrible. And, and I desperately, desperately wanted to look like Sean Cassidy. So I saved up all my money. I went to the hairdressers, and I asked for the Sean Cassidy look. And the hairdresser said, well, you got Chinese hair. We've got a permit. Oh, no. And so I said, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Slap my money down. Um, two hours later... I have this tight, tight Chinese afro. <laughs> I spin around in the chair. I look in the mirror, and I'm, I'm the spitting image of my mother. <laughs> and, of course, I got it done right before we had to take our class photo. So I have oh, that, that permanent record. And I have a younger brother who's 15 years younger than I am. And I told him the story, and I showed him the yearbook photo. I said, don't ever do this when you're a teenager. <laughs> Sure enough, grade 12, he gets a perm. So remember the universal childhood experience? We just plug that (laughs) in. Brothers never learn. Oh, my God. You look like your mom. That's hilarious. That is just tragic. That's almost more humiliating than the green corduroy pants. Yeah. Well, well, because as a teenager, right, when when you're... 11, 12 years old, that's fine. You can get over it. That's but water off 17, the ducks 18, back. Yeah. Oh, no. no that'll like, stick no, with no, you. No, that yeah. sticks. So so you didn't shave your head or anything? You No, I went to school with it. Well, for it the out. first day, I thought, well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And how did it go? It did not go well. It did not go well. It did not yeah. go well. That's too bad. I'm really sorry to hear that. No. Yeah. No, no unfortunate hairstyles for me, I don't think. I had an unremarkable high school experience. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it. And uh, made a lot of great friends that are still friends today, but I, I just nothing traumatic for me. You're going to get it all now, Probably. Right? Because right? your damn Elvish tattoo on your arm. Well, yeah, now I'm just going <laughs> to, we're going to get ridiculous phone calls to our, to our phone line, 509-252-0185, by the by. That was slick, the way you just oh, that's you great. slipped that it's, in there. It's sitting right in front of me, so I, I have to remember to do it, so yeah. So, um, so Marty, um, what are some of the things, going back to the writer-in-residence role that you now play at the public library, what are some of the things that you want to accomplish this year? Because as I recall at your Meet, Tweet, and Greet event, you had some pretty ambitious plans, like something for every month. Pretty well, pretty well. We've got uh, writing workshops through the year. So I've got a playwriting workshop coming up in March. Uh, I'm also going to give people a glimpse behind the scenes. So I'm, I'm developing a new play for the Edmonton Fringe, but I'm opening up the uh, rehearsal process and development process to the general public so people can get just a little peek at what it li- what it's like to pull a play together so they can see the actors arguing with the directors. They can see me in the back revising the scenes. Wow. Uh, and in November, uh, I'm going to be participating in NaNoWriMo and writing the first draft of my novel between November 1st and November 30th uh, at the various library branches. So that'll keep me busy for pretty well the entire year. And how, sorry, go ahead, Scott, you were going to say something. I was going to ask, uh, it, how long is the writer-in-residence tenure? At the Edmonton it's Public actually, Library. I believe it's the longest one in Canada. The Edmonton Public Library has uh, very kindly, very graciously given a year to each one of their writers in residence. I'm the fifth one. Normally, uh, libraries or universities will give maybe three months to six months at, at the most to a writer in residence. The Edmonton Public Library, they were able to uh, give us a full year. Wow. Now, can you apply again? next year and be considered or is it kind of a one-shot I think 
to be fair to the community, I think it's it's you get your ride on the carousel, you get off, you go get your cotton candy, and and, and that's it. Let somebody else ride the ride. Is it uh, pretty typical to produce several works in a year? Like, how long does it take to make something for you? For me, uh, I have a very short attention span, so I work on multiple projects, which I think was why uh, I, I did so well in television. I was able to sort of focus. We had to focus on about seven different episodes at the same time. So for me, I like working on maybe four or five projects at the same time. I've got a new kid series coming up, and I'm revising about three manuscripts in that series right now, plus the Fringe play, um, plus uh, a couple of smaller projects. Uh, they're they're uh, short stories for teens. Wow, you're a busy man. I'm just too stupid to say <laughs> I need sleep. <laughs> Sleep is overrated. It is. Sleep is for, you can sleep when you're dead. Sleep is for non-writers. Yeah. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe is sleeping right now. Yeah. Did well, he I sleep did. when he was writing? No. He did opium. Yeah. I'm told. Yeah, exactly. We'll know that from the new biopic starring John Cusack as Edgar Allan Poe. There you go. Oh. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of interesting. I would not picture him as Edgar Allan Poe. Me neither. But actually, the way they have him made up and the illustrations I've seen of Poe Looks like uh, they got Poe down to a science. Maybe the Poe visitor will make an appearance at the premiere. Yeah, did you oh. hear about this? The Poe, you know about the Poe visitor? No. So there's this dude who, for the last how many years, Scott? The Poe toaster. It's the Poe toaster. So why is he called the Poe toaster? Because he comes and he toasts Poe. Because uh, for the last uh, for sixty years, actually, it says here more than sixty years. Uh, on the occasion of Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, a stranger would come to his grave site dressed in black with a white scarf, would leave three roses and a half a bottle of cognac. Oh, okay. And then would leave. And that was just kind of the, the tradition. Cloaked in mystery. No one ever found out who this was. And uh, the last two years, no one has come. So the uh, the assumption is that... Perhaps the uh, the tradition oh. has ended. Although some uh, faux toasters, as they called them, showed up this past year. Uh, some people who were not the mysterious stranger, but were, um, shall like we say, drunk following kids. following in the footsteps. No, people who were dressed kind of the same also left roses and a bottle of cognac, and but weren't uh, secretive about it and didn't follow the same kind of ritualized traditions, the original Poe toast. It's very creepy stuff, but very fitting of Edgar Allan Poe's legacy. True. I'm, I'm just going to put this out now. After my death, anybody wants to put corduroy pants on my, my gravestone, they're, they're more than welcome to. It's going to be like the the chief identifier. If you, you wouldn't have so much a tartan for your family as you would just a corduroy pattern. Yes. And color. Yes, just, but, a, just long, thick whales <laughs> all the way down. Awesome. All right. I think uh, I think it may, in fact, be time now for your favorite part of the show. You mean the Fast 15? Yes, I do. Marty, I know you're very familiar with the Fast 15 because you're the only person we've ever had on the show who has ever actually listened to our show, <laughs> except for Karen Unland, who, who, God bless her, she's quite fond of us. So you actually prepared for this i well i prepared for it uh, but not in the way that that you would think um 
I decided when I was listening to your podcast, I, I always listened to the guests and how they stumbled over either favorite movie or music or video game. And I just thought, you keep putting those guests on the spot. Time to turn it around on you guys. Oh, so no. I am going to respond after I answer the Fast 15. I'm going to ask you guys the Fireback 5. Ooh, I like this. I like that our show is being hijacked. <laughs> Seriously, I think that's awesome. All right, well let's let's do the. Fast he's actually 15. he's sweating bullets right now. He's, I'm, I'm terrified. <laughs> he's uh, he's talking tough. I soiled. He's myself. rubbing his tattoo really hard right now. <laughs> Please don't ask. Trying to gain brother, its brother, elvish brother power. <laughs> you guys are so mean. All right, here we go. The Fast Fifteen with the Edmonton Public Library writer in residence for 2011, Mr. Marty Chan. Here we go. Number one, your favorite food. Sushi. Your favorite color. Green. Mac, PC, or Linux. Used to be PC, but now Mac. Nice. Dogs or cats? Cats. Coffee or tea? Water. Really? Yep. Neither. Neither. Not a Chinese guy doesn't like tea? No, can't stand tea. I, I drank tea almost every day. Of course. Right? Your favorite holiday? American Thanksgiving. <laughs> Your favorite sport? Um, I would say football. Favorite pastime? Reading. Your favorite music right now? I've stopped listening to music, actually. My favorite uh, music would be themes to podcasts. Right on. Your favorite movie? Favorite movie would be Tremors. Oh, awesome. Your favorite uh, video game? Plants vs. Zombies or Silent Hill. Oh, Silent Hill? Yeah. Wow, you just made me happy and Anita happy. Yeah. That's amazing. That's true. Oh, two for one. Yeah, well done. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? The ability to sense other people's regrets. That was very specific. And creepy. Yeah. I know what you regret, Scott C. Bourgeois. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, a bit of both. Empire Strikes Back and Wrath of Khan. So I split the difference. That is acceptable. Yes. But only acceptable. Now on to the wild card questions. Which of your plays was the hardest to write and why? The hardest play to write was The Forbidden Phoenix. It was seven years in development. And that's your most recent one, That's right? the most recent one. And uh, the reason why it was so hard, it was an experimental piece that uh, smashed together Chinese opera and Western musical theater. Hmm. There was no template for it, and all I could do was fail and try again, which I did for seven years. And will it be staged in Edmonton anytime soon? Uh, it was staged at the Citadel Theater back in 2008, okay. and its next production is in Richmond, B.C. this spring. Wonderful. Now, if you couldn't be a resident of Edmonton for some reason, where would you want to live? If I couldn't be in Edmonton, I would probably want to spend my time in New York. And? Well, and Zabar's. David Letterman. Oh, that too. Yeah. Um, it's all about the food for me. That's it for the Fast 15 with Marty Chan. Now it's time for Marty Chan's Fireback Five. All right. So the Fireback Five. So this is for both of you. Okay. So, so we'll alternate so that each of you have a chance to think through your answer. But the first one is, and these are all Edmonton-centric questions, all okay. right? Okay. So the first one is, the best place in Edmonton to people watch. Best place in Edmonton to people watch is going to be the Ice on White Festival during the winter light. Very nice. And Scott? West Edmonton Mall. I know that it's uh, kind of a cliche, but you get a large mishmash of people at West Edmonton Mall. You sure do. Oh, that's actually a And I've sat in the food court and people watch. Like, literally, 
been in the food court just watching people. That can be a rewarding and horrific experience. Sometimes at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, this is awesome. (laughs) All right. So question two, farmer's markets, city market or old Strathcona? Scott? See, I grew up in St. Albert, and they have a giant farmer's market there, and that would be what I think of as for a farmer's market. But local Edmonton farmer markets, I more commonly frequent the old Strathcona one. All right. Adam? I've been to both. I prefer the downtown one because because that's what streets downtown should be used for. Uh, not just for cars, but for the exchange of money for goods and the meeting of people and eating delicious waffles together. Oh, oh delicious the waffles. waffles. Oh, oh the waffles. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Homer Simpson moment. Oh, <laughs> waffles. Awesome. All right. Adam, a perfect Sunday morning is what? My perfect Sunday. Mm, let me see. Sorry, that makes me think of Can I hot fuzz. say getting stoned and playing <laughs> video fuzz. games? Or no, no, that probably wouldn't be good. Perfect Sunday morning. Actually, usually on Sunday morning, I go for breakfast at uh, the Urban Diner downtown. So that's a hell of a way to start off Sunday morning. Got to get there early because it's very busy. And then maybe um, if it's nice out, relaxing outside, reading or taking the camera, going for a walk through the River Valley. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And Scott? Well, I usually work on the traditional weekends. So my perfect... Sunday would be involved sleeping in hmm. because that would imply that I did not have to work that Sunday and it's already starting off much better than the than the typical one. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Sunday brunch. So I'll say generally even on a Sunday where I've worked, if I manage to slip a brunch in there somewhere, that's a good Sunday. Excellent. Excellent. And a perfect segue to the fourth question, which is you can eat a fantasy feast of entrees prepared by your favorite Edmonton restaurants. What would those entrees be and from which restaurants, Scott? Mm, I'm going to need a minute. Well, uh, I'll throw this out there. Um, we talked about this on the last episode, actually. The the Didn't we? The chocolate steak at Kalina. Oh, Kalina does have a delicious a chocolate, chocolate so steak. So it's like, a, it's like a, a steak with, I think, is there blue it's cheese? It's blue cheese and chocolate. Like oh. a chocolate sauce. It's phenomenal. It it's, really is good. It's If you like steak, it's probably one of the most interesting steak dishes in the city. But I will say this, um, and I'll preface it by saying that my cousin owns the restaurant, but I'm very fond of the Manor Bistro. I like everything they do there, particularly the way they prepare fish. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. I do like the Moose Factory. Uh, it's not the highest end steak place in the city but it is but it is uh definitely very good and they do meet very well and they are owned by the same people who do the sawmill so they have that delicious sesame steak sauce oh i love that sauce so good so good um and if you go and eat there you need to have the fruit flambe dessert they will make it right at your table the fireball will touch the roof it is awesome and delicious like lick your plate clean ah Lick your plate clean, delicious dessert. I've seen him oh, do it. Amazing. I've seen him lick <laughs> amazing. His plate clean. Yeah, it's so good. See, I I could never make up my mind. So my fantasy feast would actually involve several restaurants. And I actually did this for I believe it was my fortieth birthday. I teamed up with my wife, uh, my brother and his wife, and uh, we went to 
four, no, five different restaurants to pull my favorite entrees so that we could actually create a buffet. It involved sushi from the Furusato, uh, crab curry from the King and I, bulgogi uh, beef from uh, the bulgogi house, uh, uh, Cantonese chow mein from Sai Wu restaurant, mm. and a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> It's like the cherry on top. Can't go wrong with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, you can, and you probably will. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm. You know what? I'm gonna add a sixteenth fast fifteen question, but it's a general question to all of us right now. Favorite fast food restaurant? If you need somewhere just quick to go, crash and eat some food. What? And you had your druthers. Which fast food restaurant would you go to? Oodle Noodle, hands down. Boom. Done. Wendy's. Wendy's is a good one. Wendy's is a good one for hamburger. Because it tastes like hamburger. I'm a big fan of Tokyo Express, and I would still consider that to be fast oh, food. Oh, yes, yes. More so than Edo. It's, I, find it, I find it to be better quality than, yeah. than Edo. But I would still count that. If you count Oodle Noodle as fast food, I count Tokyo Express it, as fast food. Fast food is And I like fast, I well, like fast food soup. So you can take out, right? Yeah, fast food is defined away, by usually, something you can yeah. take yeah. away. Yeah. Well, excellent. Is All right. Go. Nope. We got one more. This is the one. Okay. I think one of you will be a fan, or maybe both of you are a fan of this last one. When the zombie apocalypse hits Edmonton, <laughs> where do you think the safest place in the city is? Probably the Law Courts building, that concrete monolith. Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. think. They literally like have designed the windows so they're like turrets. And I'm sure there's an armory somewhere connected. (laughs) Always got to be near an armory. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say the law courts. And that way the zombies can't get in if they're carrying metal metal objects. Now, I've been in the law courts, and I will say that there's also a lot of stairwells uh, and stairways. And I can't imagine that zombies would be terribly good at maneuvering stairs for the most part. True. What about you? What do you think, Scott? Hmm. It's a good question. The law courts was a good answer good defensible place in Edmonton. Well, I would say somewhere on the outskirts of Edmonton, first and foremost. Then you're not in the middle of the city, where you're going to have the largest concentration of zombies. True. Um, My instinct would be to say somewhere like West Edmonton Mall, but as film has shown us again and again... (laughs) Do not go to the mall. Do not go to the mall. That is a death trap. So, uh, hmm. Somewhere on the outskirts of town... It would be easily defensible where you could house a number of survivors for a period of time. How about the international airport? The airport's pretty remote, actually. Yeah. You'd have a lot of space for survivors. You'd have uh, an escape route. You'd have the control tower so you could see the zombies coming. Yeah. That could become your your new sniper position, really. And, uh, And in a pinch, assuming you have a pilot, you could fly the heck out of there. True. That is true. The International Airport is an excellent answer. I've thought about this a lot. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly you've put some thought into this. <laughs> All right. Is that your answer? Well, it's... Uh, it's an answer. It's an answer, and it, it follows the train of logic I was going through, so I'd say sure. There we International go. International Airport is an excellent answer. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for playing the Fireback Five. That was awesome and unusual, and I feel energized by it. Now, before we go, let me just remind our listeners that we want to hear about how embarrassing their lives were or are. 
And you can do that by sharing your most embarrassing story with us by calling our Gift of Gab line at 509-252-0185. Leave us a short message with your story, and you could win a prize. A fabulous prize. And we'll let you know how the contest is going next episode, and the episode after that, we'll announce our winner. Marty, it was a delight and a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you. And uh, best of luck with all those ambitious projects you have going on the Well, go. excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Right on. And maybe Adam will sit down with you and hash out his novel. Drop by anytime. I will. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 41. Our guest, Marty Chan, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm going to name drop another name. Oh, do it. Uh, someone I used to work with who's, uh, I want to say a friend, maybe more of an acquaintance. Sure. I'd say a friend. Uh, recently did publish a novel. Uh, her name is Stephanie Sparks, and she published a novel called Bloodsuckers, which is obviously about vampires. I guess that goes without saying. I have yet to pick it up, but I intend to because I used to work with her, and she's awesome. And... Uh, so yeah, just interesting success story that I'm totally going to drop into the conversation. There. Yeah. So cool. it can happen even here in Edmonton. It happens she, more often than you think. Uh, I would be not opposed to having her on the show at some point in the future. Well, there you go. Talk oh, about her vampire novels. So there are actually a few people in Edmonton. Well, there's one other author in Edmonton that I know about writing um, young adult. I think young adult vampire novels. Maybe not. She might be writing something more salacious than that. But it's a woman on Twitter named named. Trina M. Lee, I believe. Um, she writes vampire fiction, uh, and I've wanted to have her on the show for some time. But we shouldn't be talking about who we want to have on the show in front of Marty. I think that's considered rude. We're talking well, you about know other who authors. I'd want on the show. Yeah, tell us <laughs> another We're talking about Edmonton authors. You know, we have Todd Babiak here, uh, Minister Faust, mm-hmm. right? And uh, uh, we have, uh, actually, I think we had three or four Governor General Award winners uh, from Edmonton. There's Gloria Sawai, there's Vern Teason, uh, and I can't remember the third one, but, but we have Governor General Award winners living right here in the city. So not only are Edmontonians writing, we're being acknowledged for the writing that we do. Yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't even realize that. So you learn something every day. I do. It's like an NBC commercial. It's all because you know, grow on. Dun, 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 dun. Uh,